Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar, and listeners know that the Therapy for Real Life podcast aims to translate therapy concepts into action oriented self care strategies that folks can use in their everyday life. We all know that a big part of self care is in fact relationship care, which is why I'm so happy that in today's episode, we get to talk to author Fern Schumer Chapman, who recently released the book, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, Sibling Estrangement and the Road to Reconciliation. Fern Schumer Chapman describes her own experience of being estranged from her only sibling, a brother, with whom she didn't have a relationship for 40 years before they finally found a pathway to reconciliation. You'll hear Fern describe how painful that experience was being estranged from her brother. And at one point, she says it was almost like she had an acid drip on the brain, a constant reminder that her brother did not want to have a relationship with her. Fern describes the risk factors that can result in estrangement, and she shares what she found after serving many adults who've been affected by estrangement to help us understand the ripple effect that can happen through families experiencing estrangement. We know that estrangement is not rare. A nationally representative survey done by Standalone in Britain found that nearly 8% of adults are estranged from at least one member of their family. Fern describes the particular pains that come with being estranged with the sibling. And together we discuss self-care strategies that one can use if you are dealing with this painful form of distance in your own family. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. I'm joined today by the author of the new book, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, Sibling Estrangement and the Road to Reconciliation. Welcome to the show, Fern Schumer Chapman. Thank you, Anna, and thanks for having me. We're happy to have you here today. So the book that you just wrote is part memoir, and you also incorporate a bunch of survey research from folks that have been through sibling estrangement. Could you share with listeners a little bit about your motivation to write this book and the personal story behind it? Yes, uh, I sadly was estranged from my only sibling, a brother, for over 40 years. And like many who are estranged, I didn't know the reasons why. And uh, I had pretty much given up on any possibility of reconnecting or reconciling. And I wasn't even sure I wanted it anymore because it had been so long that we were cut off. Um, but my brother was in a very dark place and he let my mother know. And my mother who was in her late eighties at the time was desperate 
for help and she begged me to intervene. And that was the break point where he and I began this process of reconciling. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you mentioned that estrangement really can be a spectrum and folks can go in and out of estrangement. In my work as a therapist, I talk with folks uh, quite frequently that are dealing with one kind of estrangement or another, but they don't always put it in those terms. Would you mind taking a moment and define what we mean by estrangement? Estrangement can be the absolute extreme of complete cutoff where you have no contact whatsoever. Sometimes there's a geographical estrangement where somebody simply chooses to move away and lessen the contact between themselves and the family. Um, there are limited relationships where somebody chooses to set strong boundaries and then no longer uh, allows the sibling to hurt them in the same way they have in the past. Um, so there, yeah, there are lots of ways in which people choose a relationship and we control the level of intimacy to a large extent. Mm -hmm. And your book looks at the specific challenges that arise with sibling estrangement. Would you talk about how sibling estrangement is similar or different from other types of estrangement? Well, I think the sibling relationship is extremely unique. And sadly, there isn't that much research about it. Actually, there have only been there's only been research in the last 20 years. Freud himself only mentioned siblings about five times in all of his volumes. So uh, there hasn't been the examination and the emphasis on the importance of the sibling relationship. And actually, one of the things I learned while researching the book is that a strong sibling connection serves as the cornerstone of emotional health. And in the longest study of well-being, which was conducted by the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which has been underway since 1938, this study found that a close relationship with a sibling during college years provided the single most reliable indicator of emotional health at age 65. So mm -hmm. siblings matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and talk a little bit about the grief that comes from the lack of a sibling relationship. You described different kinds of grief. Most people are used to thinking about grief with the death or loss of a family member, but you describe in beautiful detail uh, the ambiguous loss that can come out of uh, estrangement or complicated grief. And in fact, you describe um, many of the survey participants give their own examples of what that experience feels like. Well, it's a little like mourning the living. And in many ways, it's harder than a death because a death is final. But in the case of a sibling who is alive, you have this sense that the door is always cracked open. And there's always the possibility that you might actually have a relationship. And there's something a lot more painful, of course, about being rejected or shunned. And in fact, there's been a lot of research on shunning, particularly by Dr. Kipling Williams. Um, and he discovered that being shunned is just as painful as, and it activates the same parts of the brain as physical pain. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how unpleasant and how disturbing it can be to be cut off 
from a sibling. And of course, what I didn't say earlier is that a sibling relationship is the longest relationship we have in life. So that means you can be cut off for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and miss out on a lot of important life events along the way. Well, and that's another piece of this, that it's not just being cut off by a sibling. I mean, I have one brother. So when he had no relationship with me, I therefore was no longer an aunt. My children had no cousins. There was no family cohesiveness. As you know, belonging is so crucial to well-being. And we, I didn't have any of that. And that drove my desire to write this book that I wanted to understand why this had affected me. And as I write in the book, I ruminated endlessly on what had happened, why had it happened, how can I fix this? And rumination with this mourning the living is very common. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the ways that estrangement can affect one's sense of self-esteem and also other types of relationships outside the family, you know, besides that ripple effect that you describe within the family structure. It not only affects self-esteem, but it affects, yes, the ripple in the family and it affects trustworthiness because it starts to call into question this whole feeling that if my own family doesn't want a relationship with me, then who does want a relationship with me? And am I trustworthy as a companion or in a relationship? So it's not contained to the sibling connection it actually you know, scatters out into the family, the sense of self, and um, you know, the feelings of trust you bring to other relationships. You know, if my brother doesn't want anything to do with me, then what does that mean for all the other relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the culture doesn't always help us out in that way. We don't have very many Hollywood movies that give us a typical understanding of what estrangement looks like. You share in the book a personal moment where you're chatting with a friend and being vulnerable and talking about the loss of that relationship with your your brother. And she says, but he's your brother, as if that's supposed to mean one particular thing. And so when it comes to estrangement, folks don't have... Um, many models to look to to make sense of that loss. Right. We very narrowly define the family and culturally. And uh, when families don't cohere to or conform to that model, we are very quick to judge. And that's one of the reasons there's a huge stigma around estrangement. People simply don't talk about this. They're humiliated and embarrassed that this is their life and they don't know how to get out of it. And I know myself, I really talked about it because I was so uncomfortable. And in fact, when I started to do the survey, people didn't want to put it on the page. They felt that it was too disturbing and stirred up too many emotions. And so they'd rather simply avoid this kind of experience which seems to overlap with that pattern of estrangement, estrangement where Bradley seems like a pattern of avoidance as a way of coping with really difficult triggers. Right. What are the risk factors for estrangement? What did you discover through your survey research? 
So I actually found, and I didn't, when I started all this, I didn't even know there were risk factors. So it has been a real learning experience to do the research for this book. But there actually are risk factors and there are actually perilous turning points in a life when you might encounter estrangement because relationships change. So let's talk about the risk factors. First of all, when there's family trauma. In the, and, and actually I often think about William and Harry and how they're on the world stage now with their sibling estrangement. And the brothers of course experience the death of their mother, which is a deeply traumatizing event at an early age. When there's parental favoritism, and of course back to William and Harry, the monarchy presents the ultimate in favoritism. William will become king and Harry will always be relegated to a supporting role. Well, that kind of situation often contributes to estrangement. Poor communication skills. So the monarchy is notoriously bad at resolving personal problems and thus the brothers have never learned how to negotiate their differences. Uh, family values, judgments and choices. Now, Harry married outside the family identity. Now, this is a really interesting phenomenon that you see in a lot of families. A lot of families simply won't tolerate certain behaviors that resist or defy family identity. And perhaps wittingly or unwittingly, Harry chose a partner to help establish distance or even a total break from his family. Mm. So those are some of the risk factors. The perilous turning points include any time during the life that people are forced to redefine their roles. So in adolescence, when perhaps a sibling leaves the home, in marriage, when suddenly a, a, a spouse becomes extremely important and has to integrate into the family, the birth of a baby, again, a sibling focuses on his or her new family, divorce or illness, um, and finally parental illness. And this is the big one. A lot of people struggle, a lot of siblings struggle when their parents become sick or face death or the estate has to be settled. And that is the last ditch competition for power, love and family loyalty. And conflicts often arise over healthcare, and payment for the elderly and also caregiving. Um, and then of course the inheritance of family treasures and assets. Mm -hmm. Well, this makes me wonder, you know, how do we understand estrangement? During one part of your book, you, you describe, you know, possibly we should under, understand estrangement as a ultimate act of power and control by denying that relationship. And you also mentioned that it's not uncommon for therapists to recommend distancing or cutting oneself off from a relationship if you're caught in toxic patterns of abuse. And so how do we understand estrangement? Is it, is it something good or bad? Or, you know, how do we I mean, answer that question? I think that's a really good question, Anna, and I want to emphasize, even though that I have reconciled with my brother after 40 years of estrangement, I'm not sure it's the best course of action for every estranged sibling. And the reason I say that is I think it's very important to assess the toxicity and abuse that you may have endured in the sibling relationship. Mm 
Now, in my case, my brother was never abusive or cruel. He simply, and, and I explain this in the book, he had his own reasons for separating from me. And it had to do with other relationships. And that's actually one of the fascinating aspects for me. I had blamed myself for years, but in fact, the reasons for the estrangement went far beyond anything I had ever done. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think that reconciliation is for everyone. And it's important to really evaluate the relationship and what the risks are of getting mixed up with this person again. Um, and I was very reluctant, but ultimately I did understand that the reasons for this, even though I was extremely hurt, were not about his cruel and toxic behavior necessarily. Yeah, you mentioned a really important statistic that stood out to me that, you know, two thirds of survey respondents said they were bothered by the lack of relationship, but another third were actually relieved by that um, lack of relationship. And I'm wondering if, you know, are the two thirds in relationship to the third or are they more matched up or, you know, yeah. it seems to me it must be asymmetrical a lot of the time. I think it's very asymmetrical. And sadly, those who are aggrieved carry that pain deeply. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult reality. And I describe this in the book, I felt like there was an acid drip on my brain and my ability to be happy was capped because I always knew in the back of my mind that my brother wanted nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And you describe something of a chicken or egg relationship and how estrangement can lead to anxiety and depression and for some folks, substance abuse. And then, you know, or is it the other way around that depression and anxiety and self-esteem can actually lead to cutting off of a relationship? Well, one of the lines I love most in the book is actually from my brother. And he and I are having a very serious discussion about how estrangement affected both of us. And he says at one point, by abandoning you, I abandoned myself. And I think his point is that we have this deep need to belong. And even when siblings are very different, like he and I are, we still are each other's kin. And it is important to have that sense of belonging so that you feel a peace and that you fit into the world. Mm -hmm. it, it, the research you shared earlier, it's on par with you know, physical pain and, and torture. You know, similar studies have found that it's similar to torture. And we look at those studies from 1970s and 80s about rat park. You know, if you put rats in a cage with, I think it was LSD at the time, you know, water bottle and LSD, they would just kind of drink themselves to death. But if you put them in a rat park with other, um, you know, a lazy river and bouncy balls and other rats to make out with that they didn't even touch the stuff they weren't you know they didn't feel the need to abuse substances and we see that in human beings as well i thought that was so fascinating when i made that when i read about that research and i think that was very much my brother's story that he had alienated himself so much that he had no social contact at a certain point and therefore um relied on vices drinking in order to get through the day. Mm -hmm. You called it a form of self-exile at one point. Right. right. 
Well, I'm and wondering, it, you, go ahead. And I think it is. I mean, I think when you cut off from your family, you are exiling yourself from your identity. Well, I'm wondering, you know, for listeners who are, you know, perhaps they're in a similar situation with the sibling and they're trying to decide whether reconciliation is appropriate for them. You say that, you know, you should approach reconciliation in a rational, self-protective, yet open fashion. And you even give some guidelines and questions that individuals could use to assess their readiness. I'm wondering if you could help listeners out and actually read the list of questions that you propose on page 97, or I could do it for us. I have the page um, already saved for us. Do you mind if I do that? I thought it was really beautifully written. So you said, Consider the following questions when assessing your feelings. You say, why is this relationship important to me? Not to my family or anyone else, but to me. Does my sibling want to resume a relationship? On what basis would we enter, rebuild, and maintain the relationship? As siblings, as friends, as distant relatives. Do my sibling and I have enough in common and a desire to make this effort worthwhile? Can I set aside anger, pain, and or resentment that led to the break to change our pattern of relating? Is it possible to develop a different, better relationship? Do I want to resume this relationship if I discover that neither of us has changed? Do I have the time, energy, emotional resilience, and support of other loved ones to reconcile and rebuild this relationship? Will I compromise too much of myself if I try to sustain a relationship with my difficult sibling? I thought those questions were just so apt. Could you describe a little bit about how you came to that checklist of questions and perhaps how your experience overlaps? Well, there are a lot of researchers who have um, talked about reconciliation, not necessarily with a sibling, but with anyone. And in fact, For example, Dr. Hicks, Diane Hicks has done this dignity model, which I was so moved by. She uses this model to uh, help various sides of intractable international situations. So after genocide, uh, she has the two parties sit down together and she has this model that she uses, which can also be applied for individuals. But she also, uh, I think, raises some of these questions and some of the other books on family estrangement talk about some of this as well. Uh, I compiled those questions from the interviews I did as well as some of the other books that have been written on the subject. Um, You know, I think it's very important to reflect on why you want this relationship again and whether it can fulfill you. And you know, you talked a little bit about this in the beginning. One of my big fears in reconciling with my brother was whether we were gonna lapse back into estrangement. So I can't imagine anything more painful than having your hopes raised and then discovering that you're going to end up estranged once again. And these relationships often are cyclical and they wax and wane and also, 
with estrangement, it's very common to see this lapsing back into estrangement. So the risk for me when I started this whole process was this feeling that I'm going to crack the door open and it's going to shut again in no time. And um, that's why I think those questions are very important. Who are you dealing with now? Now, the interesting thing for me is I haven't had contact with my brother for so many years and I didn't know who I was dealing with. He was a complete stranger to me. And in the begin beginning, I talk about that. I talk about how I feel like, you know, I'm negotiating terms with somebody I don't even know. And I'm not sure I can trust. And of course, the history shows that I really can't trust him. But I did move forward. And as you know, the reconciliation has been successful. And actually, last Friday, I played pickleball with my now reconciled brother. Oh, my gosh, that's pretty amazing when you talk about, you know, that's why that question stands out to me so much. Do I want to resume this relationship if I discover that neither of us has changed. And, and along with that, you talk about the importance of managing expectations. So how did you do that for yourself with your brother, not, not knowing who this person was after 40 years? What expectations did you have as you tried to initiate reconciliation? I was so frightened that I don't know that I had any expectations except that I was going to placate my mother by getting involved as little as possible. But then I saw how my brother was in such a desperate place and all of my empathy kicked in. And once I saw that he was struggling and I felt like I needed to do what I could. And I thought I had some solutions to some of his problems. And so I insisted that he get help and treatment. And uh, one of the first things we did, which I would highly recommend to anybody who's trying to reconcile, is we sat down with a therapist hmm. and we talked about our differences and why this had happened and how we move forward. Now you have to remember, I still didn't trust him after that, but at least she broke open the topic and we were able to be authentic and honest about our feelings. Can you talk about that a little bit more? What is it that a third party can do that, you know, not even another family member or either one of you makes sense that neither one of you could facilitate that conversation for the other person? What were the benefits of having a third party help you there? Well, I think the biggest benefit was I was so angry that she was able to manage the conversation so that my anger wasn't constantly erupting. Mm -hmm. And, um, she could ask him questions that I was afraid to ask, like about those 40 years. <laughs> what happened and why didn't we talk? Um, and so, and, and as you know, from the book in therapy, he actually apologizes mm -hmm. to me, mm -hmm. which was the beginning of the process of reconciliation. But the other thing I wanted to say is, it required conversation after conversation. And I think that's what you see in the memoir portion of the book, that my brother and I are constantly talking and trying to rediscover each other and understand why this happened and what we shared and how we could support one another. And um, in that way, the reconciliation was very successful. And to answer your earlier question, I want to say that in order to reconcile, you have to sit down together, 
face to face. You have to listen without interrupting and without challenging each other's story. Um, experts agree that reconciliation is absolutely impossible without true, genuine listening. There's a tendency to become extremely defensive quickly with somebody like who you've been estranged with. And so I think um, that's its own challenge. You have to acknowledge with empathy the other person's hurt. And this is what Dr. Diana Hicks says, you have to hear their story, acknowledge their anger and their alienation and give them the benefit of a doubt so that they can assume that you're dealing with a sincere and trustworthy person. Um, you have to stress your willingness and desire to reestablish the bond. And of course, most importantly, which was hard for me is to let go of the anger. It seems like the timing is so important here. And you were, you, it sounds like you were ready to try to reconcile well before that and had made previous attempts and, and, and there was a family crisis going on and your mother had pleaded you to give it another try and, and you're, something had changed in your brother and he was, he was ready for that. But I'm wondering, you know, how do folks even know if it's the right time? Well, again, I think it requires a lot of introspection and reflection. Um, in my case, I was always aching for that connection. And I was willing even though I didn't act like that to my mother, I think I was probably willing to do whatever it took because I felt so alienated without him. You know, I think, and let me, let me say this, I think for some of your listeners who have big families or more than one sibling, this would not have the same effect. And I've been asked this question before, was this so intense for me because I only have one sibling? And the answer I believe is absolutely. Because without that one sibling, I no longer had a family structure. I never felt I belonged. And so um, I think that's why the book got written. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I also want to say to you that um, I have been so struck by how many people come up to me after I say that I've written a book on sibling estrangement and they say, oh my gosh, I have to read that book. And I think this is such an underreported epidemic mm -hmm. that um, the book will find a large audience because of uh, the fact that people don't wanna talk about it. They don't wanna join support groups. And so the natural place to go is to read a book about it. Yeah, I find that to be true as a therapist. It's not uncommon that I'll hear people say, you're the only one I could talk to about this because no one else understands or going back to those cultural expectations and pressures of what's expected of a sibling relationship. You know, and there are big changes in family structure now. Uh, fewer and fewer people are living in nuclear families. People are moving far away from the family. People are having fewer children all of these trends affect these sibling relationships. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and you mentioned that, you know, reconciliation might not be the answer for everyone. And it seems that in your book, you're describing, you know, maybe three general options that people have when looking at an estranged relationship. They might consider having a very specific and limited relationship. They might try for some version of siblinghood 2.0, where they remake the relationship and address the original hurt and try to make something new out of it. And then some for some folks, it's actually healthiest to focus on acceptance and letting go. Could you talk about those different pathways that people have? Well, uh, I'll start with the third first, which is the hardest, and that is grieving the relationship and accepting. And that's exactly what it takes. Well, you have to actually say, this is not going to change. I have to accept it as it is. And that requires a grieving because that relationship will no longer be in your life. How do you do that? Well, again, meditation, therapy, if you can join support groups, support groups. I found writing is hugely helpful. Um, some people do different kinds of um, memorial tasks. So, you know, there's a, a twin in the book who uh, decides to do a ceremony where she becomes twinless because she's estranged from her brother. And that seemed to give her some peace. So there are all sorts of ways to grieve a relationship. Um, of course, that raises other complications like what do you do at the funeral? You know, what do you do? Um, again, what are your obligations to the family when you cut off in this way? Um, the limited relationship requires very strong boundaries. So that means when you feel uncomfortable in a conversation with your difficult sibling, you have an escape hatch, okay? I'm heading out the door because I don't like the way this is going. Or you say something like, when you say things like that, it hurts my feelings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a tendency to simply revert to those old roles and they can be very combative roles, uh, but that's not always, you want to try to stay in your adult self as best you can to cope with this. Mm -hmm. And as far as the reconciliation piece, I talked a little bit about that earlier, but I really believe it requires open conversations with your estranged sibling, including, you know, some people say they can do it without open conversations, Although there are people in the book who said, yeah, but I never feel that it's a safe place. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is you probably need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my case, that's what changed everything. Mm -hmm. you dedicate a whole chapter to the dreaded holidays, which I oh. think makes perfect sense because this is when estrangement hits home the hardest. And it also affects people beyond just that sibling relationship. You know, when I think about children, nieces and nephews who are not even perhaps old enough to understand, but they can feel that absence. How should folks approach the holidays or birthdays or funerals, as you mentioned? Well, I think you have to be prepared. You do not want to be blindsided. And that means creating your own rituals and making plans. And especially if you're by yourself, how are you gonna spend those long holidays? Um, and on the estrangement Facebook chat rooms, they talk about this. 
you know, that, that what their plans are, that they're going to walk around the town or they're going to see all the holiday lights, whatever it is that, or, or, or spend it with friends and fa other, other extended family members, whatever it is, you have to have a plan. And um, I think that the holidays particularly bring up pain and, um, huh, you know, a lot of people on those estrangement pages just cannot wait for the holidays to be behind them. And, you know, it's interesting. I've had a couple of readers contact me and say, you know, I work in retail and I always say happy holidays. Hope you have a good, good time with your family. And they've suddenly realized, yeah, not everybody has a loving family that they're going to be with on those holidays. And they need to be careful on how they uh, greet people and, and, and wish them well. You talk about the importance of knowing your triggers and managing those triggers, and not everyone is, is is sensitive to that. You mentioned how hard it was in everyday conversation just to hear the word brother or sister. It would provoke these really, you know, difficult turmoil for you. And so, what what do you, what should folks know about their triggers or how to manage them, especially well, if they can't avoid them? <laughs> no, you cannot avoid them. And actually, you know, we just passed National Siblings Day. That's a big one for a lot of people because social media is flooded with all of these images of perfect sibling relationships. And those of us who didn't have it are in a lot of pain looking at that. And of course, there's a lot of posturing on social media. So you can't, you have to be careful what you buy into. You know, the first point with triggers is to become aware of them. And a lot of people don't realize that you can control these things once you know what they are. And becoming aware of triggers requires what I think is known in psychology as the third eye. In other words, you are actually viewing your reactions to other people while this interplay is going on. And um, I really became a student of that. So I could see what was bothering me and how I was reacting. And um, I think that's how you make the discoveries of what is a trigger in your life. And often these triggers are tied to very early life experiences. And so if you think about it, you can probably figure out what's bothering you, why it's bothering you, and where it's planted in your history. Well, what you're talking about is very similar to, you know, what we know about post-traumatic stress disorder and recovery. And, and you even share at the end of your book, the idea of, uh, in psychology of post-traumatic growth, you know, has, you know, what have you learned personally from all of the years of struggle and reconciliation? What are some of the good things that have come from those difficult experiences? Well, the best thing that's come from these very painful, difficult experience is that I've reconciled with my brother. We have a completely different and new relationship where we enjoy each other. Um, we've opened ourselves up to each other's families. And I think most importantly, I'm not agitated all the time by the fact that I have no relationship with my brother and I have no family. Very painful to feel family-less. Uh, 
at this time, at any time. And uh, so I don't have those feelings anymore. And they ate up a lot of brain space. Mm -hmm. um, the post-traumatic growth was we, had, we shared a terrible trauma, many of them in childhood as well as in our relationship. And ultimately we were able to take those things and build upon them and create a relationship and a shared history and um, discover a satisfying relationship, which is where the growth is. And for many folks, they have to pursue post-traumatic growth outside of that family relationship if they're still coping with estrangement. And you talk about the importance of non-biological family or going back to some of those examples from holidays, people have to create them that for themselves in other ways. Absolutely. Uh, the idea of fictive kin may be the best, the next best thing. And uh, people can find relationships with others who are sister-like or brother-like and have a family of choice. Mm -hmm. It seems important that folks have a way to activate that siblinghood within themselves when you talk about identity and self-esteem to find ways of expressing that in other relationships to cope with that sense of longing. Yeah, I think it's really important to have deep connections and sometimes it's not going to be with our own siblings or our own family and therefore we need to cultivate it outside the family. And I think it's important too, not to be too judged by the narrow definition of what a family is. Are there any resources that you want to point listeners to? Your book is a wonderful place to get started, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, Sibling Estrangement and the Road to Reconciliation. And you mentioned that there are a lot of good support groups out there on Facebook and other online platforms. Are there any other resources that you would well, point it's all, to? Well, it's all very new. And actually in England, there is an organization called um, Standing Up. I think it's called, it has the word standing in it. And uh, that's one that offers some support for the estranged. But in the United States, actually, uh, my podcast partner and I have been working on podcasts on this topic. And uh, it's actually, our podcast is called Brothers, Sisters, Strangers. But he has created a website called siblingestrangement.com. And you can go there and he's beginning to build that so that you can have a better understanding of this very devastating aspect of family life. And you mentioned in your book, are you still um, accepting survey participants if, if folks do want to use that as an avenue to express or think about? I, I am accepting survey participants and you can go through my website, fernschumerchapman.com and fill out the survey, but more exciting, I am actually creating a blog and uh, people can tell their sibling estrangement stories on my website page. It's not quite up yet, it'll be up this week and uh, have the opportunity to share with the world some of their pain without having to reveal their name. They can, of course, maintain their privacy. 
Well, Fern, I appreciate your book so much. I do think it fills in a gap of, of loneliness that exists for folks that feel like they're the only ones and must be my fault for dealing with estrangement. I think it's a really powerful first step to go out there and read other stories of folks that are coping with the same experience and finding a sense of community. So I thank you for the time that you've shared with listeners on the show. Well, thank you. And I just want to say one last thing, which is, of course, the memoir is quite remarkable because it's a narrative that you wouldn't expect. But ultimately, I'm very proud to say that my brother wrote the afterword. He did. And it's really beautiful. It's nice to know that he was a part of this process. Well, thank you. It's so great to be with you, Anna. Thank you, Fern. also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy Through Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.